Okay, Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll explain why I picked this particular parable to read. It's called the parable of the weeds. It starts in verse 24. Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, uh, the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When then did the weeds, uh, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, I'm not going to go deeply into this parable. If you care to, uh, this is one of those unique parables that Jesus actually interprets it for us. If we had time, you go later on in the chapter, and Jesus actually tells us what everything means. He doesn't do that all the time. But I will say this. I love the concept of the kingdom of God. I think it's one of the most powerful and compelling doctrines of the, of the church. I love the idea that the kingdom of God is both already here and not yet. It's present right now. As we gather, as we turn our hearts to him, the kingdom of God is present. But there's also a future culmination, right? You guys, you guys believe that? I love the idea that uh, it's not just for us to get into heaven, but there's something profound going on right now that Jesus reigns right now. And he has a realm that we're supposed to acknowledge. But to be quite honest, uh, I, I like the words of Christ when he talks straight about the kingdom. Like in Mark 1 where he says, you know, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. But when it gets to the parables, I, I just don't know whether I'm just a little slow or, or what. Because sometimes I just go, I, I don't know what this means. And I know, because I am theologically trained, I'm not supposed to ascribe specific things to every element of a parable. But this one is interesting because I think there's some things I do get. First of all, you know the story. There's a field. A master seeds the field with wheat. Uh, some, an enemy comes along, puts weeds in the field, and the weeds grow up with the wheat. And the servants come to the master and say, what happened? Should we pull up the weeds now? And this is what the master says in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And if we can pull anything out of this short parable, this is what I think we should pull out this morning, is that we are supposed to be in the field. We're not supposed to be separated from the weeds. We're supposed to be in the world. And so for the longest time, I've been trying to figure out, how do I actually exist in the world? Because I've, I've been a pastor for 27 years or so. I have to actually figure it out, but somewhere around there. And for a long period of time, I spent way too much time with you gathered. I mean, I don't take that as offense. The reality, though, the, the church is supposed to be scattered. We're supposed to be in the world. I became a Christian at 21, and I was one of those guys who was a radical convert. I was involved in a lot of stuff. I met Jesus, and I turned radically, and I started following him. And literally, just my life was, I was in the middle of this internal revolution. 
And one of the things that happened were people that actually loved me told me this, that you need to remove yourself from the world and get away from those people and get yourself in a church and be around Christian people. Now, there is some helpful truth in that in as much as you could get drawn away. But the reality is it sends, it, it sends a, um, a message and creates a trajectory for people in the church that we belong in here. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. We're supposed to gather, but we gather for a reason. I have a quote here that I'm going to read to you. It's by Jacques Ellul. I wanted to use this quote just because I wanted to say his name out loud. Interesting, Ellul is a Christian, or was a Christian anarchist. I don't know if that kind of creates a little tension in your brain. But listen to what he said. This is in his book, from his book, The Presence of the Kingdom. Christians are not meant to live together in closed groups, refusing to mix with other people. The Christian community must never be a closed body. Thus, if the Christian is necessarily in the world, he is not of it. That means that his thoughts, his life, his heart are not controlled by the world and do not depend upon the world, for they belong to another master. So I, I really believe that we're supposed to be out. We're not supposed to be separatists. So the question that emerges for me is, how do we actually be in the world and not of the world? How does that work? How do we be the type of people who follow Jesus uh, and we stay uh, full of integrity in that walk following Jesus, but actually not just live in a, in a cloistered community? That's what I want to grapple with this morning. And I think there's a clue found in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you've been here a little bit, you realize that um, we're going through a series on Matthew, and Russ started it a couple weeks ago going through the Beatitudes. I'm going to pick up the last Beatitude in the text that I'm going to read today, and then we'll go into a few more verses. So if you'll turn to Matthew 5, I think we'll get some cues or some clues on what it means to live as people in the world but not of it. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Now, that's one of those verses you want to put over your mantle at home. One of those real warm, fuzzy ones. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people live a, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I'm going to break this section into, uh, or passage of Scripture into three sections, and let's look for a clue on how we're supposed to be this kingdom people. The first one, if we'll move back into the Beatitudes, is in verse 11, and it obviously talks about persecution, right? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, though we do not live in a land where overt persecution happens. I mean, um, 
example, there are places in the world where people are actually being killed for their faith, right? We know that martyrdom, there's more martyrdoms at, in, in the last year than there was in any point of the history of the church. People are losing their lives for their faith and being persecuted. Because I do a lot of my work in Europe, there's a lot of people who are converting to Christianity from Islam, and it is a grave decision. Just a week, two weeks ago, there was a front-page article on CNN about an Iranian pastor who is, uh, who is sentenced to execution because he refuses to recant of his faith. Now, that has not happened to any of my friends here. But I will tell you this. I think that there still will be hardship and challenge for us if we will choose to speak and act against the empire that we live in and for the kingdom of God. It will happen. Let me give you an example. This is a young couple in Paris. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I lead an organization that does church planting throughout Western culture, primarily in Western Europe, but here, um, some in Eastern Europe, some in Latin America. Uh, so I'm involved in a lot of things that are going on in, in Western Europe. Now, we have a church plant in Paris, and if you know anything about Paris, particularly, it's one of the least churched cities in the world. You don't have to go to the 1040 window to find them. You go to, go to France. And so most mission organizations call Paris kind of the graveyard for missionaries because it's so difficult to do work there. It's very difficult, very antagonistic. Well, uh, we have cycled through a lot of missionaries planting, church, planting a church in, in Paris, way too many. And after years and years, the church is just a handful of people. It's called Vintage Faith. Uh, it has one, uh, six months ago, it had one English-speaking small group and one French-speaking small group. And about that time, a young couple from Chicago named Bill and Rachel Carroll moved to Paris after taking a stint in the south of France to learn French. They migrate to Paris, and they start doing ministry there. And I'm talking with them just a short time ago. And uh, they tell me in, the, in just a few months, they've actually doubled the amount of people that are in the church. They've seen that kind of activity. They have two English-speaking groups and two French-speaking groups now. And I'm, I'm really wondering, how did this happen? Now, if you, uh, raise your hand if you've been to Paris. Paris is a unique city, right? That means, you know, sit on the corner, have a baguette and some wine, go to the park and make out. You know, it's... Well, we <laughs> it's a little bit of an interesting city. Well, anyway, Bill is, is really not like anybody in Paris. He's like Mr. Positive Mental Attitude, as opposed to the Parisian, who's not. And so he goes there, and he's not like anybody. I mean, most of the other people we've sent there just get depressed with everyone else and, you know, but Bill's this Mr. Positive guy. So I ask, tell me, what's going on? How is this actually happening for you guys? This is what he says. Well, well, first of all, Rachel says, well, Bill's this positive, And he's never thought a negative thought in his life, which just makes him very different, right? Counter-cultural. But the other thing they said is, they said, well, we just have parties. What, what do you mean? He says, well, we just have parties every, all the time. We have three Thanksgivings. We had four Halloween parties. We had, you know, we have parties every week. And invite people. I go, that's a good strategy. Let's party. It's a very Christian thing. We should learn how to do that. The second thing they said, though, and this is the part that's the point for this talk, 
Rachel said, the other thing is we just prepared to be rejected over 100 times. Psychologically, we prepared ourselves to be rejected, and they have been over and over and over again. See, I think, and I'm going to summarize this point with this, I think we have to become vulnerable people. It's not easy to be vulnerable. And the challenge for us in being vulnerable is we are by nature reflexively defensive. We want to defend ourselves. We want to defend ourselves politically. We want to defend ourselves religiously. We want to defend ourselves interpersonally. We even want to defend ourselves physically. Like, if I, right now, I start going after Brendan right here, and I, I'm going to attack him, he's, what's his reflex? Yeah, he's going he's to retaliate. Well, that's the way our world is. And that's where we are not countercultural. Because we have adopted the culture of America, and when someone attacks us, we attack back. I mean, it's, it's not just America. It's endemic in humanity, right? You go to the very beginning of the Bible, and we have Cain and Abel. Cain killing his brother and saying, hey, what's, uh, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And, you know, God's making a, you know, condemns him. We've got so many instances in Scripture of conflict. In fact, here's the challenge. If you know, you might know the facts of this. How many moments have there been in recorded history where there hasn't been a war going? Zero. Humanity is by nature a warring people. Someone hurts us, we hurt them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, quid pro quo, right? It's this idea of we're going to retaliate. And we see it even in Jesus' time. Jesus is toward the end of his life. He's in the garden praying. His three buddies are trying to pray with him, but they can't stay awake. They finally finish the prayer meeting. They go out, and there's a throng waiting for Jesus. And they come up on him. And somebody by the name of Peter pulls out a sword and cuts the ear off of a guy. Now, I don't know what you learned from that, whether he just didn't pay attention in his swordsmanship class early like he just missed his head and hit the ear or whatever. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question? What was going through Peter's mind? What was happening in his mind right then? Can you, can you think of anything? What do you think it was? Protecting, right? Is that what you said? What else? Hmm? Defending? You're going to have to speak up. Sorry. Slay the enemy. I think there's lots of reasons, but I, I've been plagued by this this week. And this, this is what I've thought. By the way, Jesus put the guy's ear back on, which is, <laughs> which is a good end to the story. I, that's something we don't have that privilege necessarily. You cut someone's ear off, it's probably going to stay off. I was thinking about Peter's response, and I was thinking... He might have been thinking, Christ can't do it without our power. Or we need to defend ourselves. The scary part of that mentality is what you're really saying, if you say that, is I'm my defense. And if you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear. Read through the Psalms and how many times is it, say, it says God is our defense. Over and over and over again. And it says that we are... Uh, 
we hold the power, and if we don't exercise our power, Christ is not able to perform what he wants. And Jesus says to Peter, put away your sword, or if you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. On a practical level, how does that happen? How do we become this peaceable people? How do we position ourselves as kingdom people in the world uh, and not be of the world? Well, um, oftentimes we just want to fight. It's our first move. And if it is our first move, I really believe that in that move we create enemies. Um, I'm, I'm wired fairly tight. I played sports in college. I have an aggressiveness to me. Um, and in the, the first part of me being a pastor, it was amazing how many people I polarized. I mean, something would happen, we'd be at odds, and then I would mount up with some sort of retaliation. And no matter how I tried to frame that defensive approach, it never ended like I wanted it to end. It almost always ended up, uh, up with estrangement. And somewhere along the line, I learned this thing about the idea of, hey, listen, I just have to put my arms down. I have this rule. I mean, if someone comes after me, I'm going to put my arms down and take whatever happens. Because I've discovered that even when I'm right, I'm usually wrong. Have you, those of you who are a little older figured that out? My wife taught me that. <laughs> so my initial response, my tacit response is arms down. What happens is if you keep your arms down, fighting is not nearly as fun for the other person. Let me give you an example. When I took over this role, <clears throat> I, was, um, I was actually s supposed to meet this particular person in Europe at a conference. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little distracted. I'm a lot distracted uh, in my life. And I went to this conference. I made plans to meet with this person, but I never got around to it. And the conference ended. This person came from the States to meet with me. Ended, and I never did meet with the person. So the person who invited that person to the conference, when I got home, came after me. And wrote me an email that was, uh, well, let me just say it had emotion in it. <laughs> uh, how dare you disrespect my friend like you did? They actually used a comment, a phrase that I, I hadn't known what it meant. I had to kind of do some research. He said, um, you know, it's, it seems like what I've heard about you is true, that you kiss up and shit down. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I think it's an interesting saying. I had to figure out what it means. It means you're kind of, you know, you're a climber, you're working up, and then you just crap on people. Now, I don't know what you do when people come after you like that. My, because I've kind of approached this in this particular way, I wrote him and said, you obviously are very upset. Can we talk? Point number one, it helps to talk. Right? Instead of fight. So we got on the phone, and I chose, you know, like I said, I, I'm just not going to react. He comes after me, and you know what I said to him? You know what? You're right. And I did re disrespect that person. And I disrespected you by disrespecting them. Would you forgive me? And the guy goes, I'll forgive you. And my position is always, I don't want to... 
try to defend myself because it looks like I'm trying to, you know, make it look like I'm not responsible. So I said, I don't want to talk about this now, but would you talk with me about it sometime in the future? So I think there's some other things in this email that we should maybe get on the table. He goes, sure, well, let's talk about it right now. I go, okay, let me ask you this question. Was this email written out of a heart of peace or a heart of war? Long silence, heart of war. I was trying to hurt you. Long silence, would you forgive me? That happens over and over if we can change the way we look at this. We have to become vulnerable people, and if we're not willing to, we're going to find ourselves at odds and creating enemies everywhere we go. And for us as a community of faith, that's the last thing we want. The very people that we're supposed to be loving think we're their enemies. I think we have to emulate the, the life of Christ and if we can just take a, a short departure over to Philippians, uh, I'm going to read you a passage. Philippians chapter 2, it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, if you want to know the, the real center of that passage, the life of Christ, but the lesson for us is found in verse 5. What's verse 5 say again? We're supposed to be like that. That's what it says. This, this God who did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, humbled himself, became a man, even became obedient to death, death on a cross. That's who we're supposed to emulate. And I want to tell you, most of us have been discipled by the world in this area. We've been discipled by our culture instead of the life of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you, it just doesn't make sense. Right? When you look at the life of Christ and the Gospels, all of a sudden, if, if we'll at least put down our, our contextual glasses for a moment, it begin, begins to be quite clear. We have to be vulnerable people. And, and I want to say this to you because someone brought it up at the early service. But for me, I just don't want to look weak. That's what they said. Now listen to me closely. With my arms down, I've never felt more powerful. Never. Let me look at the next verse here. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the earth. But if the, excuse me, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So the second piece here is the idea of salt. He declares something about us. You're supposed to be salt. Okay? I'd like you to take just a moment and talk amongst yourselves, break into little groups, uh, now, I'll form you in groups if you need me to. I can, but I think you can do it. Just talk to people around you, and this is what I'd like you to talk about. Talk about wh why, you, why is salt being used here? Why is it important? What is it to you? Why do you like salt? Okay? You can kind of meander those, around to those questions. All right. 
Uh, just, just two or three responses. How about this group over here? That, that group over there? Okay, tell us. <laughs> What's one of the, give us an idea about salt. What's it mean? Could be in the text, but it could be in your own life. Okay? Enhances the taste of food. What else does it do with food? Preservative. Right. Yeah, it brings the flavor out. In fact, the message says it brings out the God flavorness in the, in the earth. I love that. Good. Nice. Who else? Anybody else? Important for our survival. How about this? Those of you who have studied the Bible a little bit realize that it was actually used as a form of currency as well. That's an interesting piece of... But listen, you're all wrong. <laughs> but before I say anything, I just need to tell you that uh, I love salt. So this particular verse means a lot to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I am one of those people who love the savory, not the sweet. In fact, I can turn down ice cream. Now, if I liked ice cream, I'd be 250, guaranteed. But here's the thing. Put ice cream in front of me, no problem. Give it to somebody else. Put a bag of potato chips in front of me, they are gone. It is nothing to go through a sleeve of saltines with anything. I make mash out of my soup with saltine crackers because of the saltiness. I love salt, which means I'm going to die early, right? <laughs> now, we look at salt, obviously, from a 20, uh, 21st century American view. I just wonder what the Jewish person thought of when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And, and all of those things make some sense, all the things you shared. But here's something you didn't say, and you probably wouldn't unless you read obscure passages out of the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 2, as the, the, the covenants are being described and the offerings for the covenant is being described, it says that the salt is actually a sign of the covenant. It says this in Leviticus chapter 2. Season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant, eternal promise. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. In other words, in the Old Testament, one of the understandings of salt was it's a sign. The, the salt in the offering was a sign that God's promise was intact, real, and was in our community. It pointed to something. And I really believe that makes sense when we think about how we're supposed to be people in the world. We're really supposed to be a declarative people. We're supposed to declare something important through our actions and our words. So salt is a sign. We declare. A sign actually points to something grand. Something, or excuse me, a sign points to something important. It is the sign of the covenant. God has made us Salt, a sign. We represent him. We are to be the salt for this age. That's why these verses, like Acts chapter 1, where it says, for you'll uh, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in all the nations. That, that begins to make sense, because part of our identity as followers of Christ, of following the king, is to be declarative. A few chapters further in Acts, we find Peter and John being arrested for speaking of Jesus publicly, and they tell him, do not speak of him anymore. And this is what it, he says back. This is what Peter says. 
We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. We can't stop. And I think that's part of what it means to be a sign. When was the last time you actually mentioned the life and the story of Jesus to somebody else? When was the last time you prayed to God that he would give you an opportunity to tell that story to somebody else? You are the salt of the earth. That, that's your identity. We have to be not only a vulnerable people, but we have to be a declarative people. But let me move to the very last passage where Jesus says, also describing who we are, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people put a light or light a lamp and uh, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. So he makes this comment that we are light. Now, from my perspective, there's, again, we could describe light in many different ways. But one of the things that, that is important to me when I think of light is that of contrast. If we were in a room that was completely pitch black, and we turned a light on, it would be as profound of a contrast as would be possible. And I think that's one of the ways that we have to understand ourselves as a countercultural people in this world. Not only that we're going to operate with our hands down, not only that we're going to tell the story and live the story, but we're actually going to be a counterculture people. We're going to be a contrasting people. And um, Jesus uses two examples, city on a hill, light on a table, and that uh, those are examples of what we're supposed to be. So what does it mean to be a contrasting people? Because in my history, oftentimes contrasting people meant we're just weird. Right? We just become weird people. We take on all these Christian customs and insider approaches to life, and uh, quite frankly, those things are not the light. In fact, I would say they actually take away from the light. There's a difference between, between becoming subcultural and countercultural. Do you guys know what it is? Uh, here's a quote. This is from Howard Snyder. He, he wrote this in his book, The Liberating of the Church. He says, I think we're going to project this one. A subculture is, a fundament, is in fundamental agreement with the dominant culture on major issues, of va issues and values, but has distinct secondary values and characteristics. By contrast, the counterculture is in tension with the dominant culture at the level of the fundamental values, even though it may share the secondary characteristics with that culture. In other words, there's going to be an ethic or a, a value system that's below the surface, even though we might dress and act like everyone else in many ways, but we have an ethic that drives us at a much different level. It means, it means we're going to love people differently. We're going to love even people who don't like us. It means we're going to forgive when it's not easy to forgive, for we have been forgiven. We're going to show kindness that's beyond our ability to be kind. We're going to love different. It has nothing to do with the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the place you live, the music you listen to. All those things are externals. Let me finish the quote. The church functions as a subculture, not as a counterculture when it fails to oppose the dominant culture at those points 
where the culture pays allegiance to alien gods rather than to the kingdom of God. Now, I have a, a brilliant friend by the name of Al Tizan. He's, uh, he teaches in Philadelphia, and, and we've talked about this topic over and over again. And I'm, I'm going to read to you. Uh, I, I had a conversation with him a while back, and I actually wrote some stuff down because it, he challenged me so much on this topic. So I'm going to read it to you, and I know long quotes are hard. Uh, forgive me. Uh, but this is, this is a summa- summation of our conversation. The question that the church must, must broach is, are we countercultural or are we forming a subculture? If the emphasis is on subcultural ideas, we develop a local church context that lives by rules, insider customs and practices that are oftentimes completely foreign and many times off-putting to the prevailing culture. They are all secondary to a living embedded and engaging authentically in the prevailing culture. The real difference comes in the deeper arena of values, morals, and ethics because the local community of faith represents the kingdom of God in the community life, it affects its effect upon society is systematically is to systematically prick the conscience uh, when it violates the ethics of the kingdom. Now listen to this closely. In other words, where there is hatred, love is demonstrated and spread. Where there is injustice, the justice of the kingdom is cried out in, in protest and in action. Where there is war and threats of war, peace is proclaimed and activated. Where there is the exploitation of the earth, conservation is enacted. In other words, we're, we're different for the right reasons. I'm telling you, gang, that countercultural life changes the way we're viewed. We see in the text that um, he says... In verse 16, in the same way as we're light, the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In other words, our lifestyle, our actions, and our words actually serve as a refraction to God. They see, man, that guy's amazing. It refracts glory to God. And they say, there's something amazing about that person's God. That should be the way we are. Now, I'm going to close with this. I, I wasn't able to use it in the first service. Uh, And it it is a long quote, too. And again, if you have a hard time paying attention, you can read along with me. But this is written from, uh, this is a writing from about the uh, second century, 163, I think. The so-called letter of Diognetus. And it was written as a defense of the faith. He wrote about his brothers and sisters. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. The doctrine of theirs has been discovered by, not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching, as some people do. Yet although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. 
Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else and to beget children, but they do not cast off their offspring. They share their board with each other, yet, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established law, but in their lives they go far beyond what the law requires. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, but still they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and in their very dishonor are, glor are glorified. They're defamed and are vindicated. They're reviled and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment. They rejoice because they are brought to life. They're treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. Now, when I read that, a couple things. Made me proud to be a Christian. Made me glad to be a part of this tribe. But it also struck me as the reason he could point to the community of faith is because it was so profoundly different. It was a contrast community. That's what we're called to. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to.